This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening, everyone. I'll invite you at this time to bow your heads with me in prayer as we begin the message for this evening. Father in heaven, it is impossible for a human mind and a human tongue to communicate the things of God. At the same time, it is impossible for the human ear to understand them. And so, Lord, we are in a bit of a fix tonight, and we are in need of a miracle that you would use me as an instrument today and that you would somehow communicate the words from on high into the personal lives of each individual here tonight. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit tonight as we study your word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2. Jesus has just risen again. And as he gathers together with his disciples for the final time before he goes back to begin his work for you and for me in the sanctuary in heaven, he tells his disciples that it will be their responsibility from that point forward to, to communicate to the entire world the message of a risen and soon coming Savior. And so it is that his parting words are these to the disciples, you will receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, he says, and in the uttermost parts of the world. And with those final words, the disciples are left with perhaps the largest responsibility ever given to humankind, to be a testament, to be a testimony, to be a witness of Jesus Christ and of his soon return before an entire world. And we find these words penned, chapter 2, verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Skip down to verse 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What means this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be it known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing that it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass, he says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. 
And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and a sign, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire of vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 37 is a response. Now, then when, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and to your children and unto all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord shall call. Then they which gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto the church about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And the fear, the Bible says, and fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and their goods. And they parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. If there was ever a revolution, this is it. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts is full of revolutions. How is it possible that God takes men and women who were just previously, not in the distant past, afraid for their lives? How does he take those people, fills them with courage and boldness in order to proclaim the message of a Christ that no longer is seen, that people think is dead? If there is ever a revolution, this is a revolution. How is it that God takes selfish individuals and causes them to come together in fellowship and in unity for a singleness of purpose? If there is ever a revolution, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 records for us that revolution. I call it the revolution of power. And there are lessons for us Tonight, lesson number one is this, that the revolution of power, recorded in Acts chapter 1 and 2, is a revolution that is not dependent on who we are, yet at the same time, it is very dependent on who we are. It is a revolution that is not dependent on who we are, yet at the same time, is very, very dependent on who we are. Not dependent on who we are in terms of gifts. Not dependent on who we are in terms of talents. But it is, however, dependent on who we are in terms of whether those gifts are totally and 100% sacrificed and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not willing to be a fool for Jesus Christ, you are not ready for the revolution of power. If you are not willing to be used, to be wasted for the service of Jesus Christ, then we cannot be ready for the revolution of power. If we have not yet prepared ourselves to be used or unused 
for whatever cause or purpose Christ has in store for you and for me, then we are not ready for the revolution of power. The revolution of power teaches us, first of all, that God is not bound by the talents that you possess or the talents that I do not possess. That is not what limits God. What limits you and what limits me is our willingness to surrender what we do have to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first lesson that we learn from the revolution of power is this, that it is not dependent upon the talents that we possess. It is not dependent on who we are, yet at the same time, it is very dependent on who we are. But there is another lesson that we learn, and that is this, that the revolution of power is a revolution that is totally dependent on the Word of God. Just before Jesus leaves this earth, The final words to his disciples are this, you will receive power. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and he says, as a matter of fact, you will be my witnesses in the entire world. A revolution cannot exist. A revolution from the Word of God, a revolution for Christ cannot exist outside of the power of the Word of God, for it is totally 100% dependent on the Word of God to do what it says. The one key ingredient, the match that sets aflame the entire world and the complete individual is the Word of God. Jesus Christ said, you will be my witnesses, and so did the, uh, and so did the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel said, your young men will see dreams. Your old men will see visions. My spirit shall fall upon all flesh, upon the old and upon the young. It will fall upon those who are afar off and those who are close. He says it will fall upon you and upon your children. My spirit, he says, my word, my power will fall not just on a few individuals, but upon anyone that is called. This leads me to the next point. The next lesson that we learn, lesson number three, is this, that the revolution is for those who are called. The revolution is for those who are called. It is dependent upon the Word of God. It is not bound by what you don't have or by what you do have, but it is at the same time very much bound by what you don't have and what you are willing to do with what you do have. And the third thing is that this revolution is for those who are called. My friends, God has never, ever, called the qualified. God has never called the qualified, but rather He always qualifies those that He calls. In other words, the call itself is the qualification. And if God wants a revolution to take place, it doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter if you're near or if you're far. We, we need not ask ourselves if we are the descendants of Peter, but we need to ask ourselves, has the Lord Jesus Christ called me to be part of His revolution? God never calls the qualified. He instead qualifies the called. The call is the qualification. The desire of ages 250 says this, in the common walks of life, there is many a man patiently treading the round of daily toil, unconscious that he possesses powers which, if called into action, would raise him to an equality with the world's most honored men. The touch of a skillful hand is needed. Leaders, 
Church leaders, the touch of a skillful hand is needed to arouse those dormant faculties. It was such men that Jesus called to be his co-labors, and he gave them the advantage of association with himself. Never had the world's great men such a leader. When the disciples came forth from the Savior's training, they were no longer ignorant and uncultured. They had become like him in mind and character. And men took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The call is the qualification. There is a supernatural yet certain phenomenon that takes place with the called. There is a supernatural yet certain phenomenon that takes place with the called. They have the advantage of association with Christ. And in this association, this association somehow transforms the called to become like Him in mind and character. And people take note that they have been with Jesus. The called are qualified because the call itself is the qualification. Young person tonight, you need to understand that that you do not need anything except the call of Jesus Christ upon your life to be successful in labor for Jesus Christ. Is there a dream in your heart to do something for God? The call is the qualification. The call is a qualification because it gives us the advantage of communion with Jesus and communion with Jesus transforms the life so that you and I become like Him in mind and character so much so that the surrounding world takes note that we have been with Christ. Lesson number four is that the revolution of power is always an outward manifestation of something greater that is within It is an iceberg. It is a manifestation of something greater that takes place within. What you see on the outside, no matter how big it is, is always smaller than what is on the inside. Perhaps the best and most powerful uh, words ever recorded in the book of Acts are found in Acts chapter 2, the very first words that we read. And on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, it says, they were all with one accord in one place. Perhaps the greatest and most successful challenge that the disciples were able to overcome, the greatest revolution that ever happened, even before you read the rest of Acts chapter 2, is the revolution that has already taken place in the hearts of each of the apostles And that is unity with Christ that leads to unity with one another. It is always an iceberg. This isn't some type of yoga or karate that the power comes from within. What I'm trying to say is this, that that greater than the role that we play in the revolution is the role that the revolution plays in us. Is it a genuine power and force in our lives? Is Jesus not only someone that we believe in, but is he someone that believes in us? Because the revolution of power is always first greater in the life of the individual before it becomes an outward manifestation of power in the lives of numbers. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2 records for you and for me the first revolution that we find in the New Testament church, and that is the revolution of power. 
but it is a power that is unknown to you and to me. It is a power that we cannot comprehend and we cannot fully understand. The disciples thought that when Christ was to leave, that he was to establish once again an earthly kingdom. And so they asked Jesus, will you now restore Israel? And he says, it is not for you to know the time, but you shall receive power, real power. You will receive power when the Holy Ghost takes control of your life and in that power uses you to transform an entire world for the sake of Jesus Christ. The conclusion of Acts chapter 1, the disciples are left with the daunting task of preaching the gospel, newly established church, preaching the gospel to the entire world. And I often pause right then at the command of Christ and try to place myself in the place of the apostles. And I can't help but think, Lord, what would be going on in my mind if I was one of them? If I was given the task with my friends to preach the gospel to the entire world, how would I respond? How is an uneducated, unqualified group of people going to reach the whole world. Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues, for me is but a small glimpse of the answer that is ahead. It is as though God is saying to me, Israel, are you at all aware of the power of the omnipotent God? The God who knows no challenge and has no limit, a God whose concept of power we are not even able to fully grasp. Because when we grasp that, the ungraspableness of the power of God, only then are we ready to experience in our own lives that revolution, the revolution of power. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went to pray. You know the song? They met a lame man on the way. He asked for an alms and he held out his palms and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I not, but that which I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The Bible says that this man went walking and leaping and praising God. The revolution of miracles. Verse 11 says this, And as a lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Why marvel at miracles? The reason is because we don't understand the power of the revolution of miracles. Here we find several lessons for our contemplation, three of them, and that is this that as certain as God's desire to make people believe in Him, as certain uh, as we are of God's desire to make people believe in Him, so is His ability 
and His willingness to work miracles today for you and for me. We live in a society today where we're afraid of miracles, where we are afraid to experience the miracles of Jesus Christ. But when Peter and John went to pray, they were not afraid of the miracles of Jesus Christ. And perhaps the reason why we do not experience the revolution of miracles which the early church clearly had is because we don't understand the importance and the willingness of God to work on our behalf in our lives today for you and for me. The Bible says that as a result of Peter's miracle and John's miracle, that more people were baptized and added to the church than Peter's sermon itself. Lesson number one is that God is willing to work miracles today. We need to believe that. Lesson number two is this, that miracles are designed to bring attention from us to Jesus. That is the purpose of miracles. Lesson number three is this, that we have not because we are not willing to act. I remember when I had my first pastoral assignment in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Beautiful place. We went to a workers' meeting, and my boss, the president of the conference, said, I'm going to make an effort to visit every single pastor in their home in the entire conference. There's over 100 pastors. And I was really excited. I thought, man, this, the conference, we are so far away from the conference headquarters that it is closer for people to drive from Michigan's capital to D.C. than it is for me to go to the conference office. It was cheaper for me to fly to workers' meeting than to drive. That's how far, that's how long of a distance it is. And so I was excited that the president was going to drive all the way to visit me. And he said, Israel, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach at all three of your churches. So I was excited. He came in, I got to hear him preach, went to the first church, he preached a sermon. We were on the way to the second. And as we're driving, he's driving, he's riding shotgun, we see a hitchhiker on the road. I am facing now a moral dilemma. If I pick the hitchhiker up and we're late for church, then he's going to think I'm always late. If I don't pick him up, he's going to think I'm not, go- I'm not godly enough. This is what's going on in my mind. And uh, I look at him and I, I'm a smart guy. I think that at that time I was inspired and I said, Alda Gallimore, what should we do? And I think he's a little bit smarter than I am. He said, do what you normally do. (laughs) So I did what I normally do. Passed the guy up. (laughs) And then I thought to myself, I've already lost my job. Might as well go back and do the right thing. And so I turned around, did a (laughs) U-turn, made us even more late for church. And then I picked the guy up. He jumps in the back seat, and now things have gone from bad to worse. Because now I'm thinking to myself, do I have to talk to this guy about Christianity? Because if I don't, (laughs) 
And so we have an awkward conversation for about 45 minutes till we reach the church late. He goes in and preaches, and I stay back with this guy to talk to him. I give him my card, and I never hear from him again. And I wonder to myself how many times I have missed out on opportunities to witness a miracle because I was too busy or I was unwilling. Because if there's anything that we learn from the life of Peter and John in Acts chapter, of, in Acts chapter 3, it is this, that the Christian does not need to look for miracles. Miracles or divine appointments or interactions between two individuals that have been perfectly matched by God himself take place all the time if you are willing to look for them and if I am willing to look for them. And I ask myself the question, how many times have I passed up a miracle that Christ had or a divine appointment that Christ had for me because I was too busy or too scared? And if there is anything that we learn from the revolution of miracles, it is this, that God, my friends, has lined up for you and for me miracle upon miracle upon miracle that go past, that we pass by because we are unwilling to explore them. It happens all the time. We read about it all the time. Man comes knocking on the door. The person has been praying that someone would come to their house and teach them about Jesus. And yet we are unwilling to put God at task. I was working in New York City selling books door to door. Knocked on the door, no one came. We knew someone was inside, so we kept on knocking. Finally, a little girl came to the door. She said her mom could not come. We asked why. She said she was having a hard time breathing. We opened the door, went inside. The lady was having a heart attack. We called 911. We saved her life that day. If there was ever a miracle that I could think of, that in itself is a miracle. And there are many miracles that happen that are out there that we pass by because we are afraid. And my friends, if we are afraid of failure, and if we are afraid of looking like fools, we would never experience the miraculous power that the early church experiences and that becomes a part of its very fabric. It is the revolution of miracles. But there is another type of miracle that I want to talk about this evening. It is a third type of revolution, sorry. The revolution of witnesses. Acts chapter 4, verse 5, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, of, in the midst they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, ye rulers, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised up from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you whole. When I read this, I get goosebumps. Because this is the same Peter that in the same hall, just a little while before, had denied his master with cursing. 
But he is now a different Peter because he has undergone a revolution in his personal life. He has been transformed from a coward to a witness. And the Bible says that this man, Peter, stands before this group of people. This group of people stand before Peter knowing that this guy is a weak coward, that they will break this man. But Peter stands unflinchingly, and he says, We have done this deed by the power of the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. And the Bible says that this group of people is shocked and is put in a difficult position because they can't harm Peter. And the Bible says that they have taken note that Peter has been with Jesus. Peter has been with Jesus for more than three years. And it is only now that we find those words recorded of him that they take note that he has been with Jesus. It is a shame. Yet at the same time, it is a testimony to the mercy and the grace of God. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Verse 18, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This was the same John that would later on pen these words. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the, to the book of 1 John. Chapter 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, we cannot help but, we, but be witnesses to Jesus Christ. Did you know that being a witness is a revolutionary act? I'm not talking about any witness, but I'm talking about the type of witness that John and Peter were. That is a revolutionary act because they are not just witnessing as someone would witness in court. They are not just telling of an event that they saw and heard. John later on says, that which we have heard, that is what we declare unto you. But you see, it is possible for someone to hear the word of Jesus, yet at the same time never see his countenance. It is possible for someone to hear the word of Christ and yet at the same time never be touched by its power. 
I wonder how many times Jesus preached to the multitude and someone heard as they were passing by, yet left without being impacted in their personal life. John is not just talking about a casual witness of someone who heard Jesus. He said, we didn't just stop with the hearing. He says, that which we have heard, but that which we have seen with our very own eyes. But not just casually seen. I live in Lansing, Michigan now, and I have to drive to Ann Arbor. It's about an hour drive. And I drive on the highway, and there's a sign that always catches my attention. But I cannot tell you what that sign says. I can tell you what it's about. It's actually about revolutionary people. But I forget the exact quotation because I'm driving so fast and I'm trying to concentrate on the road and on the cops that I miss the sign and the value and the power of, that ver- of the words. Even though I see the sign and even though the sign impacts me, it's a casual scene. John says, I didn't just see Jesus. He says, but I beheld him. The difference between seeing and beholding is this. My wife, she's not the romantic type. If I buy her flowers, she will tell me, why did you waste the money? (laughs) Now, secretly, I really think that deep down inside, she likes the flowers. But she's not the romantic type. And so, uh, sometimes, romantic moments can be kind of awkward. (laughs) And so there are times when we will lay in bed and I will wait until she falls asleep which doesn't take much and when she falls asleep and I know she is completely out I will look over and I will look at her face and I will look and look and continue to look, and it's not awkward because she's asleep, and, and I will behold, I will behold her face. It's not like the sign. It's not like hearing the word of Christ but not being impacted. I will intentionally stare at the beauty of the face before me and marvel at the fact that I was able to trick her into marrying me before it was too late. But John says, I'm a witness to Jesus, not just of the things that I have seen or heard or even beheld. He says, these hands have handled the word of life. I have a friend of mine, his name is Willie. He's going to kill me for saying this. But when he was growing up, he was a Chicago Bulls fan. And one time he was at a game, baseball game. And news went around that Michael Jordan, one of the most popular athletes of our time, was using the bathroom. And he did what every fanatic person that has lost his mind would do. He went to the second floor, bathroom B, and there he saw Michael Jordan coming out of the bathroom. And he tells me that he was able to touch Michael Jordan. 
And then you ask him, what happened next, Willie? And he said, the security guard. (laughs) And this is a perfect illustration of the difference between touching and handling. He touched Michael Jordan. The security guards handled handled him. John says that he is a witness, that he has personally, intimately handled Jesus Christ. The greatest revolution that the early church experiences is that revolution the revolution of identity, looking at themselves as witnesses of Jesus Christ, not just casual witnesses, but intimate witnesses that have handled the word of life. And he says that is what we share with the world. And so we go back to the very beginning. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You will receive power, and you will be witnesses to me for the entire world, to the entire world, witnesses of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, more than a revolution of witnessing, this is a revolution of love. The love of God transforming the life of an individual so much so that that individual is willing to die for Jesus Christ. And so we find these words... Desire of Ages 251, he who loves Christ the most will do the greatest amount of good. There is no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. If men will endure the necessary discipline without complaining or fainting by the way, God will teach them hour by hour and day by day. You can be part of the revolution that began in the book of Acts. You can be part of the revolution that began in the book of Acts, a revolution of power. You can be a powerful Christian that experiences in your life the daily power of God to transform you from being a rebel to being a saint. You can experience the power of God from failure and into success. You can experience the power of God to work miracles in your life and in the lives of others. And most important and most powerfully of all, you can experience the power of God to become in witness to the things of God that He has done in your life. There are witnesses in this room tonight that have experienced in their personal lives the power of God, and we don't have time to talk to you but that have started this ministry that you are a part of today. People who wanted to be a witness for Christ so badly that they said, I'm willing to make this thing happen at all costs, even if I have to put my parents' credit card on the line. That's not me, by the way. That's James Kim. He's here somewhere. You won't even see him. But he's here, our first treasure, a doctor here in the Seattle area. People who were willing to put 
everything on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ. They are here, and you can be a part of that group of people if you have a yearning desire to experience Christ intimately and personally for yourself. In closing, I want to make an appeal for you tonight. First of all, it's an appeal for the power of God working in your life. You look at yourself and you say, I don't have the power of a living God in my life. Tonight, I want to make an appeal for you. In your life, you might think, man, God, I live my life every day. I go to the supermarket. I go to the gas station. I go to my classes. I go to work. Unaware of the fact that the people that I work with, that I encounter every day, are people that God wants to save, and I might be the missing link. I'm afraid. Make an appeal for you. Third appeal is going to be to be a witness for Jesus. You might say to yourself, I've been in ministry for a long time, yet I've realized that my walk with God is not intimate. I hear Him all the time, maybe every day. I see Him all the time, maybe every day, but I never handled Jesus. I want to make an appeal for you tonight. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we look at the book of Acts, and indeed it is a revolution. Your church is a revolution. You have placed us here at this time in earth's history to revolutionize the entire world, to show the world the face and the love and the heart of Jesus Christ himself. But Lord, how can we tell the world if we in our lives do not experience the power of God personally? Tonight, if there is someone here tonight that says, God, in my life, I'm not experiencing power, only failure. People tell me that it can't be done, that I cannot live a life like that of Jesus. But you know that you're never going to be happy unless you live that life. And you want to say, Lord, give me power from on high to be successful in my walk with you. Give me power over myself and over the devil. You want to raise your hand tonight and say, Lord, I'm in need of power, power in my life to follow you. God sees those hands. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.